Hey everybody, my name is Kai Savas. Welcome to Film Music Media. I'm here with Stephanie Economo, amazing composer, uh, Grammy winner. Uh, Steph, how are you doing today? I am well. How are you, Kaya? Good. It's so good to see you. It's been so long since I've seen you in person or even digitally. So it's 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 so great to chat. <laughs> yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah. So to you know, I'm I'm so excited we get to to just do one of these for the first time too because I mean we've I've known you since you know stopping by Harry's studio and now you know all these years later you know it's just what it's awesome watching all of us kind of just like grow into our careers now so it's just been like a fascinating ride and you've been really doing amazing work so it's it's just so so exciting to talk to you but to to kick off our conversation i've been asking this one question to everybody and i just love the answers that i've been getting it's it's it comes across a simple question but could have deeper meaning however you take it i'm curious as a person as a storyteller as a musician as a composer what does music mean to you Mm. Absolutely nothing. Uh, music means. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does music mean to me? It, I mean, yeah, wow. I think it. I think it's just my main outlet for expression, and I can't really. It that seems so literal, but um, it's it's something that even now to this day I don't even realize like what's happening when it is happening. But I do. I do think that it's just. You know, it's it's a way for me to create, and um, I feel like I create in other ways. Like I love cooking and things like that. But music is, I feel like, just a, a tool for expression for me. And I wonder what would happen if I didn't have that. Perhaps I would implode. Who knows? But um, yeah, I think that's what music means to me. And music, music, uh, it, it just it excites my imagination and my curiosity. And I, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have that. So uh, yeah, speaking of that, so what was, I want to rewind back. What, do you remember, was there a moment, do you remember like a, a show or a piece of music or something that like triggered your love or fascination with it? Like I remember, at least for me, even though I'm not a composer, my, my mom always said that I was hooked on the Jeopardy theme as a baby. Like Fantasia was one, oh, of those yeah. one of those movies that I really like was the first movie I saw. So music was always kind of something very like in my brain from a young age. But I'm curious for you, was there like a moment, do you remember where like, oh, I really am being kind of drawn to this world or did it happen kind of like gradually over time? Yeah, um, I also come from a Jeopardy family. So loved that theme. Obviously my sister was on Jeopardy a few years ago. Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I I grew up loving film. Who didn't? I grew up loving television uh, and games. I think I think some of the most influential scores to me were um, probably Forrest Gump. I just always adored that score and, and, and that soundtrack as well. But thinking back at how prominent the songs were in that movie, yet the score like was such a sticking point and the just the level of emotion in the love theme, especially, and in, in the main theme. Um, that was one that I kept gravitating back towards. Um, I loved the score for like Ren and Stimpy. I like loved all of this music that kind of like followed me around in my childhood. Uh, and and then like when I, you know, was growing up a little bit more, I was noticing music more in games and stuff like that. Like I played Halo when I was a teenager uh, when that first came out. And I remember that music like leaving quite a lasting impact on me as well. But most of all, I mean, I grew up playing violin and playing in orchestras, so I had a lot of uh, influence from classical music, which I think has like informed the way that I look at music today. So I have lots of great memories of some of that repertoire that I played. Um, but like above all, I think like rock music has had the biggest impact on me, and 
Um, so it wasn't just, you know, like, oh, I love these film scores. It's like, okay, this is the kind of music that excites me. Uh, so lots of like Pink Floyd and, um, you know, other classic rock bands and stuff have, ha have had like a big, uh, they, they've really shaped who I am as a musician. But I think, I think films, I think that my love of movies, it really made me kind of want to pursue this and being collaborative was really important to me because I went to school specifically to do concert music because I was, you know, I was playing violin in classical settings. And so I was like, you know, I love writing music and I want to pursue like just concert composing. And that was really tough for me, uh, I think, because I just wanted somebody else to like push me out of my comfort zone. And I guess I wasn't great at doing that on my own. And I felt really stuck in my own head as to, you know, I was like I was going towards the same like tricks and this and that. And I just got so bored of like living, being in my own head constantly. So working with a director, a producer, a filmmaker really um, was the catalyst for like, you know, being challenged and trying something I wouldn't have, tr you know, tried before because they see their film a very specific way. And I'm like, how do I fulfill that vision? And oftentimes that means really going out of the box and, and experimenting and doing something else. So that's that's definitely where the love was was fostered. So what, what, what do you remember? Like what made you want to, I guess, make this a career path was it since you went to school for concert music and you're like oh i'll be a concert musician when was that moment where you're like i'm gonna abandon this and start working in you know writing for 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 film and tv and games yeah so luckily i started writing for writing scores for short films during my time at music conservatory when i was just doing concert composition and that was like okay yeah this is this is what i want to do because i felt a little lost before that i was sort of like i don't know what kind of life i'm going to have as a concert composer i know a lot of people can do it successfully well not a lot but some do find a lot of success in that and it just didn't feel like a fit for me so when i scored my first film i realized i was like late in the media lab one night and i was like this feels good this is what i want and so I decided to pursue it for my master's. So I came out here and I went to UCLA um, to just sort of specialize in it and learn more about the process. And I met Harry when I was there and he was looking for some part-time help and uh, the rest is kind of how it all, it all started. So yeah, so that was your moment meeting Harry and that's everyone always wonders how do people get in to know, you know, uh, you know, someone working in the industry and it usually, every story is just like it usually just happens by accident or as a, an ad yeah. that was had no name attached to it and then it's just you're just it's just the <laughs> luck of the draw. So with Harry, I'm curious uh, when you first started with him, was that uh, do you were you nervous? Were you excited? What was like in your headspace when you were kind of got your foot in the door and you're like, oh, I'm gonna get to work with Harry, who's, you know, done with Tony Scott and Ridley Scott and all, you know, working all these amazing blockbusters. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was definitely a little nervous. Uh, I hope he never sees this, but admittedly, I did not know who Harry was. I'm when going to send it to, to him right after and the text it. Right. <laughs> I didn't know. Like I had seen, obviously had seen Shrek and like some of his other movies and Man on Fire and all that stuff. But um, he he came and gave a presentation and I, I absolutely loved the music that he showed. And uh, that was at UCLA he like assigned us all a scene from the town to rescore and then we went to his studio a couple weeks later and he like gave a critique and stuff like that and I was interning at remote control around that time so his ears kind of perked up and he was sort of like oh you know I came out of there and this and that and he was yeah he was looking to hire someone part-time because at that time he had just come back from sabbatical and he was looking to like rebuild his team he just had one um one person working with him at that time paul thomason and i was still getting my degree so he was like do you want to just come on part-time and work and that was a great fit for me 
I was definitely nervous because I didn't really know what to expect. This is my first job, first industry job, you know, first real life big person job. Uh, and so I was a little nervous, but really open minded. And Kaya, literally, I went in every day and just tried not to fuck it up. And I did that for six years. It was six, six, I still six do years. That every day being life. Like, do your thing. <laughs> exactly. That that's what it was. So it wasn't so much like, what can I make of this job? This and that. I was just like, I went in, I was a sponge. I learned as much as I could. I asked questions. I, I tried to be like a good part of his team. And that was just, yeah, my life pretty much every day. For six years and <laughs> and he and yeah and i mean i remember coming over and you were working and i mean he kind of i mean you guys co-composed some stuff together and it really kind of got your you know kind of feet grounded and everything so i'm curious what are come what are some of the skills that you've learned i know everybody has like different approaches and different uh, you know you know things so i'm curious what are something that you took from harry that maybe fit with the way you do things that you still you know do today some skills or lessons that you've you know, carried with you I've learned just countless things from Harry, obviously, but some of the things that stick out most, I mean, you 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 know Harry, like you know how he is. So he, you know, he, he he's very manic, he's energetic, he's got like, he's never, I never see the man just sit in a chair. I It's very hard to, to even just like, you know, witness that. I love that about him. But one of the great things about that is if he has just even a kernel of an idea, if he's like, oh, this cue just needs some guitar. We just need to get some guitar, get some layers in there, some dulcimer. Like he's on the phone with George Deering 10 seconds later, like setting up a session for later that day. And it's just this sense of immediacy that he has because of how quickly his brain is working. Like he he never sits, like he never rests on an idea. And I think because of that, his creative process is so, it's constantly changing. It's, it's, it's morphing, it's doing all of these things. It's inviting in new voices. It's just always making it better and at like such a rapid pace. And I really love that. So like whenever I have, have an idea for something or I'm, I don't even know what the idea is, I have like surrounded myself with lots of soloists and players who I can bounce ideas off of and they'll be willing to just be like, yeah, let's try something, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And I feel like I definitely adopted that from him because, you know, you could wait a week and sit on something and then it might not like, you know, take off or whatever. It's like, just do it in the moment, just follow, follow the instinct. And I love that about him. So I, I definitely took, took that away from working, from working from him for years. Like, just do it, do it, do the thing you have an idea for. And then from a more like technical standpoint just watching watching him make music for years um he's always going through his sequences and just muting stuff muting it unmuting it it's like can i hear can it, is it adding something or do i not notice if it's gone and if he can't hear that it's like adding something or has a place in the mix he just deletes it it doesn't really matter what it was doing it doesn't matter like if he spent a long time programming it he's like not precious about things and I think that's a really great way to approach music. It's like you're always trying to find clarity. You're always trying to improve, make it better. As we write, we throw so many ideas at the screen, right? And sometimes they work for a little bit and then you build the track around it. And it's like, well, that doesn't have a place anymore. It's, it's it, you know, that role has been taken over by another element. And so him going through and just doing that, I think that's why his mixes always sound really great. And everything has a place and a purpose. It's not just, you know all in a mixing bowl like kind of creating this whole sound it's it's every every individual thing it, there's there's a reason for it to be there so i love that and i try to do that in everything that i do sometimes you can start to lose perspective when you're writing music especially if you have to write it very quickly but that i think is always a really worthwhile um thing to do as a composer just like mute stuff and get rid of it it's not doing anything yeah no absolutely and yeah his energy is just like kind of, it's funny he's very 
uh soft spoken but it's just like fast and he talks and i just i am it's unannounced i'm not gonna say what it is but i just worked with him on liner notes for something but it was just like mm -hmm. i just text him something and then immediately just a call back because it's just easier for him to just yeah. talk yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love that i love it like he makes it happen it's in the moment just do it get it done it's better to just yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So when it came time, I think uh, I don't think I, I actually talked about this with anybody because I've I've met so many amazing, talented people when I first moved to L.A. interviewing a lot of these composers I grew up with. And now everyone's really kind of kind of blossoming in their careers and doing amazing things. So I'm curious for you, what was the point where it was like, I think you just mentioned earlier how you liked directors because it kind of forced you out of your comfort zone. And I'm sure working for an A-list composer like Harry is kind of a little bit of a safety net and comfortable and you have you know kind of that protection when was it time for you to be like i want to kind of go out and do my own thing and was it scary was it something that you were just ready to do and did you have to get kind of like pushed out of the nest or i'm just curious <laughs> the great the best thing about working with harry is that he from the second he hired me he knew like i'm not going to be his assistant forever and not a lot of bosses are like that, right? They're just like, you're here to do the job, you know, don't know how long you're going to stay for. But for him, he really was my mentor and he took on that role to help me navigate the industry. He always was so transparent about my role with filmmakers or with the studio because he knew that like one day these are people that you're going to have to make connections with too. And, and so over the course of six years, he was just so generous about giving me that visibility with people who have hiring power. And I think that served me so well. And I'm so lucky to have had somebody like that looking out for me for so many years. Um, so much so that like, you know, I did the Sundance Labs a couple years into working with Harry and he was like, you have to go, you have to do that. This is a big thing for you. And like wrote me a great recommendation. And um, from that, you know, I like met lots of great people. And then from there, I met Laura Engel of Craft Engel Management and then her her like junior agent at that time, Jonathan Clark, who's my agent now. We just like had a meeting and hit it off. And it was a very slow thing. You know, when you get an agent, it's not just like, OK, you have a job the next day. No, you know, I was young. I had very few. All of my credits were um, working with Harry, like writing additional music. And so, you know, John Clark was so great because he were the same age and we wanted to build something together and we knew it would take time. But it's just like these little breadcrumbs that you sort of um, you just leave a trail of them. And eventually, you know, people hear you're real enough times and then you get in the room with people and you develop a relationship over years, usually not working with them yet. And so while I was working with Harry, I was afforded those opportunities working with an agent to kind of just get to know people. And uh, just something stuck one day, and that was uh, the second season of Step Up High Water, where I got I got hired to um, do the score for that, which was my first gig kind of on my own. That wasn't like a, an indie short film or something like that. And Har Harry was very kind, and he was like, you can work on it here in the studio here. And while I was still, you know, obviously his assistant. So he was he was great about that. Like, he knew that I needed to start doing that concurrently while I was working with him so that by the time I left and went out on my own I had my feet firmly on the ground he we co-composed a whole tv show together Manhunt Deadly Games which was really nice to do and obviously just years of writing additional music on his scores too it just really prepared me so brilliantly for working on all different shapes and sizes of projects you know whether it's an indie whether it's a big studio film whether it's a video game or animation you know anything um, coupled with me starting to 
you know, the machine was going with my agent and working on some projects here and there. So how did I know when to leave? I mean, I don't think I did. I think um, we were working on Mulan and we were working on Mulan for like over two years, a little over two years, I would say. And I think just Harry and I have this understanding, like, you know, this is the big one. This is the one to go out on. And I, because <laughs> um, like I was starting to get some more offers and it had been a long time and, uh, you know, six years is, is a while. And he, I think he understood like, you know, it's your time. It's your time to fly. He didn't have to sit me down and tell me like, this is it, you're leaving. Uh, I, I, it wasn't it wasn't like that. I think it was all just like a mutual understanding of like, this is the logical next step in your career to, to go freelance and kind of do your own thing. Yeah. And the timing was suspiciously great because the like by the time we finished Mulan, I had an offer to do the Netflix show Jupiter's Legacy, which I started like a month after I left. So it all sort of aligned in at the right time, which is very rare. And then the world shut down and that was March of 2020. And so I was just in my cave. I started my own studio here at my house in North Hollywood. And uh, that was that's that's how it happened. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'll be your neighbor then because I'm coming back to Valley Village. So I'll be. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. Let's let's go get drunk somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. But no, but speaking of his generosity, I remember I came over. Yeah, I remember I came, I think I came over to Wave Press when you guys were working on Mulan. And I remember he was, he had these high, like, you know, Harry doing this, like, oh, you can travel with us when I go to China and research instruments. I'm like, what, man? What are you talking about? He's like, how can we get Disney to pay you for this? I was like, I don't get paid anything for this. This is like a, a side thing that I do just for fun. <laughs> like, and he was just coming with all these ideas. And then he was like, oh, you can film my masterclass so we can do this. I was like, can we just do the interview in Mulan? But I was like, <laughs> but one was, thing at a yeah. time. Yeah, I love, I love Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's it's great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you mentioned some of your projects, but uh, and I want to jump into a few of them because I I love the stuff that you've worked on. Um, but and uh, I do want to ask before we jump into that, kind of maybe like a general approach question because I know and I know each project is very different and it's going to change, I guess, depending on the project. But in general, I'm curious. Like, where does the first note come from for you? Do you, like, what's kind of the the your place to go to get inspiration? Do you like to watch that first lock cut? Do you, if you're lucky enough to be early, do you like to read the script? Do you like to sit down with the director and just hear it from them? I'm just curious where, mm -hmm. kind of where do you, will, if you have your choice, where do you love to start kind of your process? Yeah, I wonder what would be my preference because I've done pretty much all of like all of those things I've I've been on early enough where like early enough in games I feel like in games you're often hired quite early so you just have like a synopsis and then some concept art and then you just have to be imaginative and kind of go from there and then um you know I've I've read scripts and then come up with a demo from that just you know without seeing anything Usually I, I like starting with some kind of with a script and a creative conversation with the director, producers, whomever, the creative team, uh, just to get some ideas percolating. On Jupiter's Legacy, I by the time I got high, well, I had a meeting like a year before I actually ended up getting hired on it because they were it was quite early. They were still like had some stuff to shoot. But I read some scripts for that and I wrote a demo just based on that and based on some conversations I had with them. And then, you know, it wasn't time for the music yet. So they came back, like, maybe it wasn't a year, but a bit later. And then they had really good cuts of all of the episodes. So that was really nice because I, we got to just sit down and, like, spot the whole season with those, like, pretty good cuts, which is a very rare thing, especially in television. But that and... Yeah, that enabled me to like zoom out and make, especially with a story like Jupiter's Legacy, where it's like jumping timelines and there's so many characters, 
to like zoom out and and take a look at like what can the music accomplish on like a higher level how can i plan out themes how can i expand how can i do all of this what's the scope going to be uh that was amazing and i probably won't have an experience like that on television for a long time but i loved that i loved seeing that but i also loved being part of like the more granular stage where it was just a script uh, my demo, my original demo for Jupiter's Legacy could not have been more different than what the actual score ended up sounding like, you know, because it's it can be just so different how it how it evolves. But I don't know what my pre I think my preference would be now that I've done now that I've been part of some projects early. Um, I really like building something and then having those first notes that I write be the worst notes of my life and then getting a chance to like do it again, you know, because my first go at something is always fucking terrible. I hate it, uh, which is just I've accepted as part of my process. And now I'm just like, just get through that part. And then so you could get on the other side. Uh, so so a V1, a V1 like, has never made it into the final for you. A V1 is usually never it. <laughs> it has. But as far as like a theme, like a theme suite, or something like that, like trying to crack the palette and just the vibe. I uh, usually it's it's the second one, um, but I do. I will say though, I do like just jumping in and going in right away too. I I did this show called The Chair on Netflix, and it was a really quick turnaround. It was like a ten day ten day turnaround for that whole series, which it wasn't a ton of music, but I love just getting in there and just getting in the nitty gritty and, and making it happen. I I love both. I love the feeling of both of them. A lot. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, men you mentioned, uh, yeah, let's jump into some of your projects because uh, you mentioned Jupiter's Legacy, which was fantastic. You did such an amazing job with that show. And I know it ended up getting kind of canceled pretty. I mean, there was an uproar from fans like because 30 it was, seconds after it, yeah. yeah. It was like, it was <laughs> it back up. then, we were still like, what is going on? How does, how does streaming work? Like, it was just like, what is happening? And now, yeah. fast forward years later, and still, how does streaming work? We don't know. <laughs> the entire place is collapsing around us. But I'm just curious, when you started on Jupiter's Legacy, it must have been just amazing because you talked about getting that kind of scope, which I always am always curious about, like how a composer can map out like the the arc, you know, especially on television when you're just like you don't have something like that, but you have you were lucky to have that. So and especially world building with a science fiction show like that. So I'm sure that must have been fun. Do you I mean, what were kind of your like, your highlights like of your of your of your time working on that? Like moments like scenes or or themes that you wrote that you really kind of just look back on and look at that was so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, like after the fact, I realized there was a lot of stuff in there that was so much fun. But, you know, as you know, like the pace of, of a show like that, it's like, oh, my God, I just have so much important music to write and get it done. Um, but it was really gratifying because of the science fiction element. There was like an historical element, a regional element, um, the time periods. It was it was it was cool to be able to delve into like all of these stylistic things. Um, you know, because there was obviously like there was a lot of hybrid like orchestral stuff. Then there was like a like an industrial punk theme that I wrote for a character called Chloe. Um, and then some like weird, like experimental vocal stuff The I think, I think seeing all of the episodes um, before I wrote a note of like a note of music, it, it, I like had my eye on the penultimate episode, which was episode seven. Cause it's like the big journey episode where they like go to this Island and find their powers. And it's this huge discovery journey episode. Um, and there's this like bonkers scene at the end where they just like go through a portal and end up on the moon of Jupiter. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, that my eye is on that scene. And like, how do I make that special? How do I make that like a big gratifying moment for the audience? This is like when they gain their powers. And I, for some reason, I just heard, I heard choir. Um, 
not for some reason. I mean, it's not like that unusual of an idea, but I pitched it to them in the spotting. I was like, this could be cool to like just have a, a big corral here. And they really liked that idea. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to write the whole six episodes before that and just have a choir show up in episode seven randomly. So I decided to like unpack that and use vocals as an element in the score um, in the, in the uh, like more unusual, like microtonal, like chanty, um, like through lots of effects and stuff kind of way as this sort of trail, like leading the seeds being planted, leading to this moment. So vocals become like a really big part of the fabric of this journey. Um, and so, so that was a really gratifying piece to do. There was another piece in the same episode where the showrunner um, wanted this um, like on-screen uh, sound to be music. So like the characters kind of go and put their hands up on the wall to like try to open up the wall and there are all these lights that come up whenever they touch it. Um, so at that point in the in the show, I had developed themes or motifs for a lot of these characters that were in that scene. So I essentially designed like these these like sonic signatures using their motifs with like things growing out of it and it was it was uh and but with score underneath too so it was like the diegetic and the non-diegetic existing together and that was so fun to do and all of that stuff had to come together very quickly too but that's what i mean i really thrive on that kind of fucking chaos so so it was I really i, need, I need a deadline time. it was like <laughs> to get something done i'll just wait to the last second no matter what so it's like <laughs> And I've learned that about myself, and now I know it. And I'm like, what, whatever. This is. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to change. No, no. Just lean into it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, you, you mentioned video games as well, and you did such an amazing work on, on Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok, and Siege of Paris. And so I'm curious, you know, as a composer, and of course you you won a Grammy for it, which was the first ever, right, for, for that category. That's pretty awesome. Where Where is it? Yeah. I see it. It's back there. I see it. <laughs> it's over there. It's right. It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> so when you come on to i mean the i played the game and the game is the main game is massive and of course had an amazing yeah. score so i'm curious as a when you come in to do dlc and for people who aren't gamers dlcs are usually just giant expansions almost games in themselves where they kind of act as supplemental or additional stories do you treat it as almost like a sequel to the world of of valhalla and I'm curious, did you have to, like, when you were working with Ubisoft, were they like, you need to kind of make it feel part of that world? Or were you kind of given some uh, leeway to kind of try new things and make it kind of a little bit more different than what the the main storyline was? Yeah, they definitely encouraged me to do my own thing with it, as long as it sort of felt just vaguely, like, production-wise in the same universe as Valhalla. So it, it can exist under that umbrella and not feel like, okay, this is part of Syndicate or this is, like, part of another game. Um, which was a really fun challenge for me because I absolutely love the main game music. I love what Sarah and Jesper and Anar did. I think it's phenomenal. So I was like super inspired just by the production elements and how they incorporated all of this like very primitive rustic stuff, but really in, in, with like really modern production. Um, like all this Nordic influence and stuff like that. So that was amazing. So Siege of Paris, um, which was the first game I ever did, which was a smaller a smaller DLC. Um, you know, I, I kind of went down a similar route with that. Uh, we were in Paris, so I was trying to study what did Paris sound like in the year 800, whatever, when the siege actually happened. And there's not a lot of information about what the hell music sounded like then. So I just kind of collected some some like primitive instruments, like wooden boxes with strings and, and just kind of um, went from there. So much of what those the, that and Dawn of Ragnarok ended up being is like a lot of live 
stuff that I was just playing here in my studio, experimenting or like getting like a few soloists in. So that that's kind of what made that stuff up. And it gave me really amazing license to suck a lot at an instrument that I just like couldn't really play. Um, but I could I could explore it and it didn't need to be like pristine that wasn't the kind of music that we were going for it was going for grit it was going for just something else like but you wanted the organic element with it so I gave it gave me license to just be like you know I come from the classical world and it's not acceptable to suck on anything you do there but here it, it was like it's all good you know you came up with a cool sound you know who cares if like like I can't really play the cello but when I tune the low string down like by a tenth it sounds really cool when the string is like bouncing against the fingerboard and it's like this gritty crazy thing and then affecting it in here it's just it was a fun it was a fun opportunity to like unlock this new side of myself as a composer um, so that started on Siege of Paris and then Dawn of Ragnarok, which came next, which was like a much bigger expansion, they, Ubisoft specifically was like, this is, now we're leaning into the mythology of, of all of this stuff. So like, you're not grounded in a time period, you're not ground, attached to an historical event. There's a lot of creative freedom here. And that's when we had discussions of like, how can we make this special? Like, how do we, how do we put our own stamp on this story? And uh, that's when the talk of maybe trying to lean into black metal came and that ended up being being the kernel of the idea that that launched the whole the whole score that's amazing yeah i love the score i mean it made my like top list for for game scores because it was just so tactile and when you met I mean, just, you can feel it you can feel the great you can feel like you can reach out and just grab the music and it and it's just for something when you're looking at a digital world it just gives life like to it so you did such an amazing job so congratulations on, on that well-deserved emmy <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah let's uh move, moving along uh, recently you just did um about my father which is uh another fantastic uh score and i, I love sebastian maniscalco i mean my wife and i love we just you know binge through we'll just rewatch some of his specials all the time like his his style of comedy yeah. so i mean and uh you know we're seeing kind of these like stand-up comedians kind of shepherd their own um you know comedy movies i know Bert kreischer just did uh the machine so i'm curious what was it like you know that he's really this comes from his you know his relationship with his father it's a comedy it's going to have some funny moments some hearts some stuff like that so i'm curious how do you balance writing i guess getting a comedy score and how do you get the, the comedy score right <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. I comedy has always terrified me. Comedy and animation were the two things that always terrified me. And uh, because I truly do believe that comedy is some of the hardest uh, music to write. Yeah. Um, so the director on About My Father, Laura Teruso, is just so wonderful. We had so much in common. Uh, we're both from New York and come from Italian families. And uh, it was it was a fun ride to do that. But something I loved about Laura, which is a sensibility that we shared, is that to us, like, comedic music isn't funny you know I we find we find comedies to be much funnier when it's the music is taking it very seriously so the whole and I think a lot of people share that right it's like when you have like bouncy plucky music it's like okay it's a bit silly right it's been done and I think with a lot of the ways that comedies have gone recently it's just funnier to like have a thing and stick to it or just like push into the the seriousness of something so the fact that it was an Italian-American story, I explored like a lot of Italian music, whether it was like Italian folk music or Italian disco, Italo disco. There's like a track in there that I did for that. Um, that just was my way of telling 
the story through the music uh, for Sebastian and his, his dad's side of the family. So, um, you know, like lots of mandolins and things like that, uh, kind of taking the place of what a guitar would do in a lot of ways. There's also a lot of guitar in it. but And then by contrast, um, uh, you know, Sebastian's in-laws and his like fiance, his family, they're obviously like very well-to-do country club-ish sort of uh, family. So they got like a more... Um, pretty much exactly what I said, uh, just like a more hoity-toity sort of, you know, upper upper class kind of feel for them. So that contrast with like something more rustic Italian with that was was a fun way of just kind of playing, pitting those two things against each other and creating comedy in the score, but stylistically sticking to those things and having confidence in those ideas is what, you know, I'm hoping made it come together. Absolutely. And when you're doing, when you're, when you're kind of pulling from a certain culture or a certain country or style, is it like, is it a hard like kind of balance to find like when you kind of make it kind of original to or I guess organic to the story and not like an Olive Garden commercial where it's like too much, you know, where it's like, <laughs> where it's yeah. like let that, yeah. you know, in terms of your really kind of Italian feel. <laughs> where's the yeah. where's the line, I guess, for as I what I'm asking? Like, where's how do you know what you're doing too much Italian if you want to bring it back so it's not overshadowing, I guess, the organic emotions of the characters and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know where I knew the where the line was, but I think I just knew I knew where it was like pushing too far, right? So it was an element of like I, I do I do a lot of studying and listening before I start a score, especially if I'm making a choice to be like, okay, this is going to be a black metal score. Like I'm I'm obviously going to do my best to like make that as authentic as possible, whether that's you know bringing in musicians who are just like live in that world or listening to a ton of it and really like getting granular with the study of it. It's usually both. Um, and that was no, that was no difference um, for about my father. I listened to so many different kinds of Italian music, which was a blast, but I would come into the studio every day and I would just find something else and just like make playlists and uh, you know, keep listening and studying and figuring out instrumentation and finding players who could bring that to life. But it's all sort of like told through my lens of how I write music for media too. So it's like, yeah, so it's, it's, but it's also like, there's a refinement that can go into that as opposed to just being like, let's just put an Italian tune over this. It's like, no, let's shape it. Let's craft it. Let's add some strings to this moment. Let's, how do we, you know, how do we bring it into into not just feeling like oh this is a bunch of Italian needle drops? Um, so I think I think yeah I think just knowing the line is somewhere uh, and I think I think writing my own theme um, and exploring the instrumentation and all of that stuff I think was me bringing it in and 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 honing it in a way so it didn't feel like I hope it didn't feel like an Olive Garden commercial. <laughs> Though, no. like, okay, this is right. This is too many breadsticks. We got to come back here. <laughs> too many breadsticks. Got to cut back. I know it's unlimited, but everybody needs to, you know, yeah, everyone needs their boundaries there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and yeah, let's just dive in because I want to talk about Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, which is uh, coming out. Well, if you're watching this right now, the movie is out. Go check it out. Uh, DreamWorks Animation. And you got to um, work with uh, Kirk D'Amico and uh, Farron Pearl, um, the co-directors of the film. And uh, yeah, so talk to me about, uh, this is you know, such an incredible, uh, I, I saw um, Kirk kind of talking about how it's kind of inspired by John Hughes a little bit, kind of getting that teenage adolescent kind of story and kind of really making it relatable, but also doing it in the most creative way that animation allows, you know, so what the beauty of that of that medium. So I'm curious, what were the first conversations you had about music and what did the what did the movie need, I guess, musically for for this story? 
Yeah, so I was brought in probably about a year ago, so like last summer, uh, where they sent me a script and wanted to just have a meeting with Kirk and Farron and Kelly and discuss the creative possibilities of the music. And I was super inspired by the script. I was inspired by Ruby. She just sort of jumped off the page. I was really inspired by the relationship between all of the women in the movie, her mother, her grandmother, um, and a lot of that generational trauma I thought was just really compelling. And then also just Ruby as an ordinary teenager and how do we, how how do I as a composer, like what can I bring to this story to make it really unique, make it just for Ruby, um, but also like it needs to have the scope of being like, yeah, she is a teenager, but then she grows into this great responsibility of being a giant kraken and needing to protect the kingdom and um, becoming this sort of superhero narrative. So it was, it was an interesting challenge, but first and foremost, I mean, coming on early in animation is such a beautiful thing because it's very similar to video games. I found that you're, the music is so crucial in the world building and they know that, and they really want to kind of find that sound and find that world while they're figuring stuff out, you know, um, while they're, while they're very early in the stages of animation. So for me, when I read the script, I just heard like dream pop. I heard dream pop. I heard like synth pop. Um, it just reminds me of, of water. It reminds me of being near the water. I think it's a lot of the like really reverby affected guitars, the, um, you know, like the wet vocals, the dreamy vocals, all of that stuff. It just reminds me, it like envelops me and it reminds me of water. So I, I didn't like have a to like a clear idea fleshed out, but I brought that up to them and I said, you know, this could be an interesting way to start. It could be a cool stylistic influence to explore because then I can lean more into like the like ethereal sense of it like when she's underwater and lean more into like the synth side and then when she's her regular teenager on land uh, going to high school I could lean more into like the indie pop side of it so it's a little bit more grounded um, and it plays it 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 worked like I just I sat down and I wrote a theme suite and actually Kaya this is the one instance where I wrote a theme suite and the first version stuck I was very very surprised by that uh, and yeah, so her theme was written like a long time ago, uh, and it was my way of starting to explore the dream pop sound. Um, and they liked it. They liked it. So they decided to hire me. <laughs> I was very lucky for that. Um, because like truth, truthfully, I didn't, I, animation was the, like, I want to do everything. I want to do all types of projects. I want to work with so many different kinds of people, but animation scared the shit out of me. And I thought it was something I was just like, I don't need to touch that. I feel like there are so many composers that do that exceptionally. And I was like, I don't think that's my thing. You know, like, I don't know. Harry is one of the most brilliant animation composers ever. Um, but it's it was overwhelming to me. And I was sort of like, I don't think I can do this. And then <laughs> I talked to them in the meeting and they didn't want that. Whatever stupid idea I had in my head about like what traditional animation music sounds like, it's obviously like not real. You can do whatever you want. And I think, you know, Kirk and Farron and Kelly really, really wanted that. They wanted something different. They wanted something a bit more rule breaking. They didn't want it to be super traditional. So that gave me license to be like, okay, so I'm just gonna do, I'm gonna follow my instinct to do this idea and explore here and just not worry about the rest. Like, just make music how I know how to make music. And just because it happens to be for an animated movie doesn't make a difference, right? So there was that weird mental barrier for me there, which I had to just, like, overcome for whatever reason. And now I just want to work on animations. No, I'm just kidding. I, I would love to keep working in animation because it's absolutely amazing. And just the, the level of creative license that they gave me was 
so so insane um but yeah so the dream pop the dream pop thing was the idea and uh that's that's really the shape that the score took. Obviously, there's a lot of orchestral um, elements in there too. We recorded Abbey Road for a week and some strings, woods, brass, choir, percussion, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, getting getting to play in a palette and see how I could marry that and make it bring bring the scope in and make it like a big superhero story too, and have it be gratifying for everybody. I mean, that was such a that was such a fun place creatively to live in for a while absolutely so when you when you came in was it just like was it or was it storyboards was it like uh, animatics like what stage did you come into production and start working yes yeah, so i'm trying to figure out what the first thing i saw i think they sent me like an animatic of one of the scenes and then my god they worked so fast i mean they were they turned this film around in crazy quick time uh so i think they sent me one scene initially and that was was like a little bit of inspiration for me to write the theme suite um and then from there i think they just sort of it, it all came together a lot of the movie was storyboarded like towards the end and then were animatics um but it was pretty like concurrently happening so like the first reel was really solid so i kind of just started there and if they needed music or like if they were having a hard time with one scene or they had like they had lots of previews for it so they were like we don't really know we need something good for the scene i would like go and write something so that they could slot it in for the preview to just sort of make it come to life or whatever um so did you have to do yeah, so any temp? Was... was there a temp was there a temp or were they just kind of using your suites and kind of mixing in to try to keep it as to you as possible i'm sure there was but like because I, I remember I've, yeah. I've always snuck into those preview screenings and it's just like you know temp up, up and down <laughs> yeah it was it was a lot of it was it was tempt it was tempt um by the point we kind of sat down and spotted we spotted like a little bit at a time because we were waiting for things to sort of fill in towards the end but yeah there was lots of temp in there but they were also like pulling in my theme suites and i was aiming to like get okay i'll try to get the first reel or at least like 15 minutes of music in for your next preview so at least it was starting to come together and um that was a great process because that's not always the case i know with harry that was always the aim it's like let's try to get in for the preview screenings like get people used to it um and and so that was that was a good that was a good process for sure uh yeah animation was different it was great it was it was so it was so great and i'm so i i'm really proud of the score it i really do want to like live in the music a little bit longer and like write more stuff write more stuff like this i got to work with my husband who's a guitarist he was like the main player on the score john is amazing uh he played god the sheer amount of guitars he played on the score um he he has a, a rubber bridge guitar which is uh like popularized by wilco and everything like that but it just sounded like a big ukulele. And so there was something about that that really evoked the feeling of water and stuff. And he found this amazing ele electroacoustic harpist uh, who lives on Long Island. And there was just so many effects pedals and things like that that were used in this really to get that like dream pop sort of feel to to all of it, to bring it kind of together. So it was a good time. It was a really good time. That's that's so awesome to hear. Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, I work at Cartoon Network Studios. So I'm, I'm surrounded in animation all the time. I mean, we're doing television animation, yeah. which is still, you know, in the 2D world. But you know, well, now that we've kind of kind of working more closely with Warner Brothers Animation, I know they have some, and I think you know, into the Sp Spider Verse has kind of opened up what animation can be. The style, like I know yeah. Gremlins, our Warner Brothers Animation show, Gremlins is really just visually amazing, and and Sherry does the score for that, and it's fantastic, and and it's just like, I mean, the so I'm curious, like for yes, yeah, now that you've worked in animation, what 
Is there anything in animation that, uh, or anything in live action that you just can't, or you, anything in animation that you can't do in live action? Is it, yeah, I know you talked about there's these rules or trying to break rules. Does animation really just kind of allow you to just be as big or small as you want that you could not do in live action? I think you can do stuff like that in live action, but I just felt like the process, I was really encouraged to like make it different. Like the animation can hold, like, can it can hold up to it you know what i mean like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that doesn't have dialogue that the music can help tell the story they were even saying like we'll change the animation like if you feel strongly about what the music needs to do in this moment or if you say like we don't need that line because the music is telling you that they were just so open and flexible as to like what music could bring to something and I know a lot of people really respect the role that music plays in media, but I felt especially in animation, it was like really revered what it was bringing to the whole thing and how colorful it can be and how much depth it can bring to the story. So that was that was the biggest difference, I think. Um, I've always felt like appreciated for the work that I'm doing in live action stuff, but this felt a little different. It felt like I was really like massively part of the whole thing. And I think that's that's a testament to just the creative team and Kirk and Farron and Kelly and how they wanted to bring me into that and wanted to were really open to my ideas and kind of just let me run wild. I feel like every single time they came by my studio for a score review, I would be like, OK, so I I had an idea to like get some conch shells and like send some conch shells to my friend in Minnesota. And he just like recorded a bunch of shit for the mermaids and found like a bohemian crystal instrument player and like stuck her in a studio for like more experimental stuff. And they're like, what, what is happening? Like every week I would have some like ridiculous idea. And they're like, what is, go you she's like, how do you, they're like, how do you have all these friends that just play these random instruments? I'm like, it's uh, it's my lot in life. Every composer's lot in life to just find, find these people who are like, hell yeah, I'll experiment. My, uh, my brass player friend, his name is Jake Baldwin. I went to conservatory with him and uh, God, he's such a brilliant player. He plays so many things. But he, I, I feel like he never knows what's going to be at his doorstep when he goes home. Because I'll just send him stuff and not tell him. And he'll be like, did you send me a trombone didgeridoo? And I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, yeah. I thought it would be cool to, like, play around with that stuff. The amount of things I have I have sent him to be like, can you please put your mouth on this thing, please? That would be great. Um, is insane. But he's so down. And that's what's so exciting is to be like, he's as nuts as I am. He was like, should we try recording trumpet underwater? I was like, good. You're as crazy as me. I'm glad. I, like, I... I respond to that. So <laughs> I tend to surround myself with, with players like that who like to get creative and, and kind of follow that that train train with me. And that there was a lot of that on this. That's awesome. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, that's just so refreshing to hear. And also the fact that you got to work on an original uh, film, which is, I hate to say it, a rarity these days. I mean, other than Pixar. So rare, yeah. It's like, it's hard yeah. to find these, like kind of just have a budget to make a film and be an original idea and not some sequel or a reboot or spinoff or something like that. So the fact that this yeah. is coming out in theaters and it's just so refreshing to see that. And then, and, uh, and the story itself, I, mean, I want to go back to the story. So Ruby, I mean, to, to capture that kind of teenage adolescence, was there um, something that, uh, it's such a relatable thing. I mean, John, and I, I know that uh, the director talked about, you know, having John Hughes's inspiration and those films are like, I still watch, I just watched Pretty in Pink recently and just kind of, and it still just carries from the yeah. 70s and 80s. It still has those themes. So I'm curious, totally. what, are, what are the themes here that really spoke to you and how did it influence like kind of writing the kind of the emotional undercurrent of the, of the themes for the characters and for Ruby specifically? Yeah. Yeah. The John Hughes thing was something I, I didn't know that they were trying to do. Um, 
until I started writing music for it because I was exploring the dream pop thing more. And, um, you know, I was listening to so many different kinds of synth pop, like starting with Cocteau Twins and like even like The Cure too, which is a little bit different, but like elements of that really sort of played into that. And they realized when I when I started putting that music up to the first reel of the movie, they're like, wow, it really feels like a John Hughes movie. And I was like, oh yeah, it kind of does. Like with a bit of that sort of retro 80s stuff, it just kind of linked in. Yeah. So like that element of it just kind of, it did that and it made us feel it like put me I was like yeah there's a familiarity to this now and to the teenage experience and making it feel like like a bit of a throwback to those movies while still having its own kind of thing going on and Ruby is so so unique and and quirky and and uh awkward and really wonderful to sort of follow around but it was this kind of thing that unlocked that sense of this is what it's like to be a teenager and that was really important for me to be able to capture that but also working within a palette like that stylistically I could tip into all of these things so like when she goes underwater I could tip into the more like cinematic synth pop side of stuff where I'm like using the Juno 60 on a lot of shit and like you know it, it doesn't have to be like as light and peppy it doesn't have to be you know as much like that like it could lean more into M83 or something you know those influences more so it, it just gave license to just try something else because I had established the sort of teenage sound and be like, well, there's a lot that I can do within this sort of world. Um, so, yeah, that that became like the more the like the center, like the heart of the score, I think. And Ruby's theme kind of goes through all different. It's like a kaleidoscope, basically, where, you know, it's heard on guitars a lot. It's heard on synths. It's on vocals. Ari Mason did incredible vocals on the whole score. And then. You know, when she starts to feel she goes to the kingdom and meets her grandmother for the first time. And there's this sense of royal majesty with lots of orchestra and brass and choir. And, uh, you know, as she grows into her powers and, and accepts who she is, there's a lot more of like, she's a superhero. Like, here's her theme with lots of guitars, but also French horns and, and all of this other stuff. So um, blooms at the end kind of comes into earns its yeah, earns its space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's there's lots of other character themes in the movie too i would say the other main theme in the film besides ruby's theme is what i called the motherhood theme and this was what i talked about with kirk very very early on where i wanted to be able to tie the th three generations of women together even if like they weren't in the same place a lot of the time so this sense of just like familial belonging and responsibility was always there so for Ruby's mom, who's like a realtor, she gets the motherhood theme, but like on vibes and vocals and like a more like peppy way. And then the grandmother, Jane Fonda's character, she gets it like on all the trumpets and like the big majesty kind of feel. And then how I it was important for me to have that all sort of come together as they come together towards the end of the film, too. So it's like interlocking with Ruby's theme and their theme to just sort of show how they're more powerful as one unit. And then... Yeah, there's lots of other themes. So Chelsea is our mermaid character, a popular mermaid character played by Annie Murphy. And I wanted to give her like a Pharrell beat, like beat sort of theme. So she has that. And then she's got like these conch shell calls and didgeridoo. Because I felt like a lot of the Missy Elliott like production stuff, it always incorporated world instruments. So um, the conch shells and then the didgeridoo was in there and then like a vocal call. And then that becomes something very different towards the end of the film as we find out more about Chelsea. Uh, in a more sinister way there's like a a theme for the folklore of the mermaids which is a bit more chromatic and like enticing and sort of like a siren kind of theme uh 
yeah and then like lots of lots of little things but it it was it was so fun to be able to explore all these worlds and make it pop the way the animation pops like it needed all of these kinds of influences and little character themes i think to to make it come to life but as we kind of uh wind down our conversation you know i want to talk about just recently you know we've been We've been going through, I think, the most change we've ever had in the industry. I think everything around us is constantly shifting. So in your perspective, how, how are you, I guess, adapting with everything? How do you kind of stay sane? How do you navigate the, the shifting waters all the time? And uh, what are some good things that are happening right now? And what are maybe some not so good things that we still need to work on? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot to improve on, surely. Um, I mean, I think we need just more transparency between uh, these studios and creators and artists and things like that, between PROs and artists. Um, I think there's there's just a lot of transparency that's needed overall. Um, I think we also definitely need to work on diversifying the amount of artists that are kind of getting a lot of these jobs. Obviously, it's still... We're seeing we've seen a lot of progress over the past few years uh, with a lot more women and people of color composers coming in and and getting what finally the opportunities that they they so so it's just a so belated and that they deserve. But there's so much more work to be done with that. I mean, I've been to just a couple live concerts showcasing media music recently, and there have been no women programmed on it. And it's like pretty crazy that that's still a thing that's happening. Um because we do feel like it's so weird, like on a micro level, we all feel like there's been a lot of progress. We're all working, putting our heads down. We're doing the job. We're seeing a lot more young people coming in and getting assistant jobs. It feels like there's been more of an eye of just everybody having a level of self-awareness to know, like, we, if you are in a position to create an opportunity, please try hiring someone who is a little bit, has comes from a different background. You know what I mean? Um, so that's been great. That's been great. But there's still so much more to do with that. I think the good things, there are a lot of good things. I think. Crickets. I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just there, don't read Deadline or Hollywood Reporter and there's a lot of good. Yeah, just, just, just don't read that stuff. Yeah. Um, obviously, the, the, the rampant abuse in this industry, I'm glad that there are some things that are finally coming to light. I'm, I'm surprised that people are surprised by it. But that accountability, I think, is very, very important. And we're all actively, at least like I know myself and like the younger generations that kind of came up through the assistant community are actively trying to reshape that narrative for people and create safer environments and make resources where people can go and have um, transparent discussions without any sort of risk of, of retaliation or anything like that. Uh, we're trying to just like show the younger generation, like, please speak up and we are here. Not only just speak up, like we, here's a place where you can go talk, you know, we're like working on on creating resources for that, which I think is really important. The positives, I think, are that, yes, we have made like a lot of progress as far as um, diversifying voices and getting, you know, just more interesting people into the fold for this stuff, whether it be people coming from an artist world or, or not. It's just, we, it, we've been shown time and time again that you don't need to have, like be a classical musician or have studied this in school to find success in this. I think the beauty is that the more diverse voices we have, the better this is, the more evolution we have in media music, and it's it's exciting. I also think with games and, um, you know, virtual reality and things like that, the, the, I think music, the role is always shifting and the possibility of how we can design sound and create worlds are becoming like so much more dynamic and 
immersive and fantastic. Like it's not just films and TV anymore. There's so many different kinds of media and it's it's an exciting place for creators. There's so much that I still want to learn and experiment with that I have no idea about. Um, and I think that's one of the positive things is that, you know, media is not going to go away. It's only going to get a little bit more different. I think there's always going to be Hopefully there's going to be still be a lot of opportunity for people to uh, be original, write original music in these kinds of spaces. So I'm hopeful for that. I know, you know, the, obviously the um, automotive side, the automation side of all of that is, is, is lingering and we're all sort of thinking about it. But um, I, I do feel pretty confident that it's always going to be a place for creative voices and for, you know, new new ideas for composers. Yeah, no, I think it, it's it's yeah, we're going through there's a lot of. There's a lot of hard stuff happening right now and a lot of people are losing jobs and the industry is just fixing itself from this giant rampant, you know, streaming war ramp up from everything. And it, yeah. it is affecting, of course, the people who are affected aren't the, the people running the stuff. So it's just, it, it is hard, Never. but it's, uh, I, I am, I am optimistic because it is like, I know just a few years ago, I'm seeing more movies kind of in that middle range or getting made again, which I thought I would never see kind of original ideas in that kind of yeah. mid range budget that kind of vanished for like a good five to 10 years, maybe where it was yeah. just like, you got a $200 million like blockbuster. And yeah, comedies are back. I was like, whoa, we got comedies. comedies in theater, like in theater again, like they stopped making movies like that for so friggin' long. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then it's just like, I'm seeing, you know, I'm, I'm going to go see Wes Anderson's new movie. I'm looking forward to that. And mm -hmm. just like kind of stuff like that, where it's like, you know, there are a few kind of filmmakers that are still getting stuff done, but it's hard to get those budgets, you know, and investors to, to put money into that because everyone's expected that you'll need that. You need that $1 billion return on these movies, which yeah. is like, you know, it, and it just, it just, just takes up all the real estate of like budgets for people to tell stories so totally um but i'm, I'm, yeah. I'm optimistic yeah i'm seeing these things come out and uh going back to the movie theaters i'm like oh these are movies that i would go back to a movie theater to see you know it's like yeah i'm hoping that like sort of there's like an under it's not an underground movement but i'm hoping that like some of those mid-range and like lower range stuff like if they do have a place in the theater that we all like collectively go and support that because that's the stuff that excites me that's that's a lot of the stuff that i loved growing up and made me want to do this you know it's not just like the big budget blockbuster stuff like that's the stuff i would rewatch over and over again um you know less so the bigger stuff so it's yeah yeah i i agree i think it's an exciting time i'm ex I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that continues to develop and i hope we all just like with everything that's going on technologically can can look at it and support like some of those the the, the smaller the smaller guys because there's such so many brilliant stories being told and such exciting filmmaking happening at those levels absolutely no 100 agree and uh well before we uh we wrap up i just want to uh, talk about like anything coming up on the horizon that i know you have i think you have big my big fat greek wedding three coming up yeah. so that's exciting like that's amazing you get to work with the other yes. like so yeah anything you can um, tease us a bit awesome. you know, or is it already finished are we all wrapped um yes yes just wrapped like quite recently the other week uh it was it was very fun i mean the original i'm half greek half italian so i got to do about my father and my big fat greek wedding three in the same year so i can check that off off whatever list they're, they're thrilled. Uh, but no, the original of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I still feel like is one of the most quoted movies among my group of friends, at least, and for most people. It's, oh my God, what a dream. I couldn't believe that I was going in for a meeting with Nia. I just told her, you know, like, 
how how massive like a, a huge cultural moment for for greek people for that movie and um the the film this third film is so beautiful they go to greece in it so i got to again do a lot of study of of um you know greek music island music uh, mainland music and uh work with some really fantastic greek musicians in greece uh, remotely through the process and it was it was really gratifying and I felt like I got to tap into into my roots a lot so that was that was a fun process and Nia was so lovely the whole time and it was it was a blast I'm excited for people to see it it's really fun awesome yeah I can't wait to check that out that's gonna be amazing so congrats yeah. on that too that's awesome that you just wrapped Thanks. it <laughs> well Steph, yeah. we've, we've covered so much uh, we've talked about everything and and thank you so much for all your insight uh, as always it's just so much fun to ch chat and go into your process so yeah appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. And also before we stop, I want to thank you not only for this, which was so wonderful, but um, I want to always thank you, which I feel like you've done for so many people, um, like in your score reviews and stuff like that. Anytime Harry had a score that came out, like you would always give me a shout out, like saying like Steph wrote additional music on this. And just nobody does that, you know, and I just feel like you understand like the people coming up, how crucial it is to have some sort of visibility. Um, so I always thank you for that. I just I think what you're doing is so wonderful. And you just you're you're so kind and genuine with all of that, but just very generous with with what you always decide to include. So I thank you very much for that. Uh, of course. I mean, I, I, that's how I, I when I grew up and fell in love with this this art form, I, you know, I'm not a composer, but I went to the filmmaking route, I went to film school, like it wasn't just the director that I you know, looked up, it was like, who are the, the who are the writers, who are the, the, the makeup people who were you know, such a team yeah. effort. So, and even when I fell in love with Hans and Harry and, and John Powell, like, those were my, like, my, my boys growing up, you know, those are what kind of got me yeah. into it. And it was just like, oh, yeah, they, they worked with Hans and Hans gives gives them credit. And then you see their names, and then you see the names of people they work with. And that was the first thing when I moved to LA was like, oh, I get to meet everyone who's part of these teams and that's why I always like I always you know called it out because it is a team effort and I just this idea that it's just one name at the top or that, that controls everything <laughs> it's just like I yeah that's the, like I love auteur the, the idea of an auteur filmmaker and that's what I fell in love with but I think that one thing that should change is like I don't like the fact that it's like a Martin Scorsese picture or you know something it's like it's it's every it's like, yeah Martin Scorsese yeah. is a visionary but it's like there's so many people that help that make that vision come true so it's like exactly think, yeah yeah and that's what I, it, it just well, that's really kind of, of you. Yeah, film school. I love just hanging out with everybody, and we're all just making stuff, and that's that's the fun part of it. It's yeah. not just the glory part yeah, of going totally. out and taking credit for everything. <laughs> exactly, I feel exactly the same. <laughs> well, Steph, I can't wait to to get to get back to LA, and uh, we're neighbors. We definitely should uh, hit up the the Tiki Bar in, in North Hollywood and get drunk. Yeah, man, and, yeah. let's do it. Let's do yes. it. I'm ready. It's gonna be ready a blast. I can't wait.